Good evening, and welcome to a very special two hours of television. Tonight, we will see for the first time two original dramas created by perhaps television's greatest storyteller, six-time Emmy Award winner Rod Serling. Beginning with a short film about a contemporary young woman whose life unfolds in a most unusual way, we then travel to post-Civil War Massachusetts, where Rod Serling's last unproduced screenplay comes to life. So please sit back and join me as we journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, The Twilight Zone. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And I am so pumped this week to be covering Encounter with the Unknown Part 2. <laughs> I was going to make the same joke before about this is definitely a wrong turn heading south. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, no, this is not the sequel to uh, Encounter with the Unknown. Uh, this week, we are taking a slight detour, very slight detour, to 1994's Twilight. Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Lost Classics. Lost being the operative word here. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm always weary of any lost classic, of any lost works, because um, usually it's not lost. It's uh, <laughs> it's forgotten by the artist because they didn't want to put it out, um, and it, it's probably not a classic. <laughs> but it, it's one thing if it's a piece of work that somebody's working on and they pass away before they can produce it or something like that's one thing. Um, but I feel like Serling probably had a lot of these stories that he discarded, but for some reason this one got, uh, was found. So uh, yeah. And here we are with this movie. Yeah. Um, so, and then again, the genesis of this, of us covering it, aside from the fact that it's Twilight Zone, because it really, I mean, Twilight Zone adjacent, they're calling it Rod Serling's Lost Classics. In the very beginning, they play like a Twilight Zone intro, and then they specifically mention the, the Twilight Zone. Um, <clears throat> this was supposedly, these two items were found, the story and then a script, were found in a trunk in the attic by Carol Serling, who was the widow of Rod Serling. And she was one of the co-producers. There's a lot of producers on this. And so the first part uh, that we'll get to the theater was a story idea that was then turned into a teleplay by Matheson. Richard Matheson we'll talk about them more further later. And then this other thing, uh, what was it called? Where the Dead Are. Um, was it what it was called? See, that's yeah. I feel so yeah, bad saying the that. Dead where are. the Dead Are. Um, that was actually a script that was written um, years after The Twilight Zone. So you get the idea that it was actually either a long form episode of television or potentially a movie script that they just used and they, they brought for this. So, yeah, which, which is really rough for pacing in this because the first story is about 25 minutes, uh, typical twilight zone length. 
Um, the second one's like an hour plus. Yeah. You know, maybe like an hour and a couple minutes. So, I, I mean, it, it really screws with the pacing and the tonal shift between the two <laughs> stories yeah. is drastically different that it disjoints the film uh, uh, like crazy. So it, it's it's a strange watch. It is. It, um, is, it is very strange. Um, yeah, I. I, I'm not going to say uh, whether I liked it or hated it yet, but it was just it was strange watching it and trying to put, especially with the first story, trying to place the story as if it was done for Twilight Zone and thinking of how they would have done it for the episode was interesting because it was laid out much more like an episode. Yeah, and I feel like that's that's actually the better conversation about that portion. So let's just get the housekeeping out of the way here uh, as sure. we do. Uh, air date May nineteenth, nineteen ninety four. Actually, you know, we don't rarely, we don't often hit air dates like on like almost the same day. This is almost like we're almost like to the anniversary of this uh, of this being played on CBS, and no one cares, but I find that interesting. Um, number one film, uh, you'll like this. The Crow was the number one film that weekend. Uh, number one song, I'll like this. Uh, Ace of Bases, The Sign. So uh, I was 16, a sophomore, and I really, really liked Ace of Base. <laughs> Jamming 92.3 here. Yeah. Love it. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> all that she Cleveland? wants yeah, is another baby. That's all she wants. Uh, so uh, the, the also happening this day, the final episode of L.A. Law premiered, and then Jackie Kennedy Onassis passes away. So I always like sneaking in Kennedy trivia and everything that we do. So. Um, and then also, little under a month later, O.J. Simpson would be fleeing from police in his white Bronco. Think about that. Like that's like that's one of those images that you know is like unforgettable, and that that was less than a month away from the airing of this. Not that that has anything to do with anything. It's just that that's one of those things I remember happening, like watching as it was happening. Yeah, this this uh, was hard to play to the ratings of the whole OJ case and everything. I mean, this had to have hurt because of that, because everybody was watching the news and everything to do with OJ. So, um, yeah, definitely couldn't have helped this film. No, no. Uh, so, all right. So let's yeah, let's just get into it. So the first segment uh, called the theater um, is the one that's the shorter one that you mentioned. Uh, well, we actually, should we just mention James Earl Jones? He's the host of this. We should talk about that because yeah. he kind of does the wraparound. Yeah. Well, James Earl Jones is the host. They kind of have him in this movie theater. Um, and he gives his little intro narration. And then you can tell that he recorded both opening narrations at the same time because you can hear like the room noise as they're playing those narrations over. Yeah. Um, very rushed. Very, it was like he was trying to do Serling and being stiff about it, yeah. but it came off like way too intense and fast. But I mean, that, really that's fast. kind of James Earl Jones. So it, it um, sounds like Keith David to me now when he was doing some of the narrations for the Civil War documentaries and everything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's he tries doing that like very like like a like professional like we're going to do this and but he's really fast with his reads. Where and I'm not saying that Serling was slow. But his pace is a little different. He kind of let the words kind of, kind of exist for a second before you know, like James Earl Jones was like destroy, crushing it as going along. Like, I'm going to say this so fast that you don't even know what just happened. And now we're on to the first story, you know. So, um, but James Earl Jones, it's good. I mean, no matter what, though, I, I I love him. So I'm glad that he was part of this, even if his delivery wasn't the best. If you want a voice to remember, that's the man that you get. Yeah. 
And I should mention with him, he did work with Serling previously. He was in a movie from 1972, I think it was, called The Man, that was written by Rod Serling. Yeah, about the the first African-American president, which I was yes. reading about that. Um, that was originally meant to be a TV movie, but then it got turned into like a theatrical release. So like Noam was really happy with like how it came out because they had a TV budget and then it went to the theaters. <laughs> so, um, that, I mean, yeah. it bold. It's, a, it's a great idea for 1972 though. Like I, I, it's one of those things I've, I've seen in passing through his filmography and everything. And I would love to check it out just based on the premise of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but yeah, you got James Earl Jones for a second introducing the, this, you know, like lost classics of uh, Twilight Zone here. Um, yeah, and we should mention both segments are directed by Robert Markowitz. Yeah, um, who didn't really do anything of note outside of a ton of made-for-TV movies. He did one episode of Amazing Stories, so I'll give him credit for that. And that's uh, oh, did he? Yeah. I, I must have missed that. Yeah, I was I, looking for, for any connection. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was like, come on, man. Yeah. There's got to be some reason he landed this, but um, yeah, a lot of made-for-TV movies, though. Like, just a whole tidal wave of them when you click on his page. Yeah. Um, like, this guy never but, this guy never ascended above. I'm not saying that... Dude dude had a career oh, making... He, probably, team. Made a, he yeah. probably made a nice living on the stuff he did, so nothing yeah. against him on that. And th- this film actually looked pretty decent. Like, it, for a TV movie, it felt very Like big. a TV movie. Oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> no, like the second segment felt pretty big. And I, I think some of it, I also want to mention uh, the music by Patrick Williams in this. I think that was one of the strongest parts of this, especially in the second segment. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit more, too. But I, did you look up what he's done? Because the guy actually got nominated for an Oscar, which yeah, surprised he's me. done a lot of stuff. Um, um, I The one that keeps sticking out in my head was uh, Cry Baby. I think I saw in there the John Waters movie. Yeah, with Johnny, with Johnny, Depp, right? Johnny Depp. And I love that movie. So and he also uh, did. But, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it gives it a great feel, though. I, I was pretty, pretty surprised with the music in this. You didn't think of uh, the movie The Cutting Edge where you had the hockey player and the figure skater trying to compete for Olympic gold. You didn't think of that movie first. Come on. I, I know you own that. You have, you own probably you don't own that. But yeah. No, I own Youngblood's. <laughs> you own, hockey movie. Wait, you own Youngblood? <laughs> I didn't know that. That's actually a, that's a pretty good movie. That's a pretty good hockey yeah, I movie. I love that movie. I, I own that and Miracle. Those are the two hockey movies I own. I did I did not know that you own hockey movies. And Miracle is a great film. And Youngblood has a young Patrick Swayze and a young Keanu Reeves, so everybody should watch that film. Oh, that's that's a uh, that's amazing. Anyway, th- but neither one of those have anything to do with what we're talking no, about. It's a great movie. So yeah. All right. So um, you can always tell it's gonna be great when we're like, yeah, let's just talk about let's just talk about Miracle. I mean, if we want to talk, yeah, I, mean, I I would Kurt Russell. Yeah, I absolutely would talk about Miracle for an hour and a half. But no, we're gonna oh, talk about that movie. Will choke me up. All right, continue. Sorry. <laughs> Um, we're going to talk about Rod Serling's Lost Classics. So you guys can blame me for picking this. Uh, and I feel like, I feel like whatever, um, whatever, uh, debt that Kevin felt like he owed me because of encounters with the unknown has been paid because I've made him, uh, watch this not to, not to tip our hand. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll go, we'll go into the first story of the theater. Um, I have the intro, which, um, if you guys listen to the very beginning, you have James Earl Jones talking and then you hear the sound of a projector it immediately goes into this. So there is a lot of background noise. So just tuck in. And then once we get past, uh, uh, James Earl Jones is a narration. We'll talk about the theater. Melissa Sanders is having difficulty completing her city hall commissioned sculpture. 
Her behavior is characteristic. She delays. She defers. She refuses to commit to decisions in both her personal and professional life. She thinks she has all the time in the world. But she does not. Because that world will change forever. When Melissa Sanders walks through the door of a certain movie theater into the Twilight Zone. I just, you know, it's like the, the script called for arc welding the entire time behind James Earl Jones's dialogue. That's what that it was very important to have yeah, welding going it on. Was, it was so 90s. <laughs> you got your you got like your studio warehouse apartment, just sparks flying everywhere. Um, it, it felt like Blair Witch 2 or <laughs> like any of those movies. What, everyone living in like a warehouse studio apartment. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah. Um, do we jump in? Do you want to do a little bit of cast? Yeah, I forgot. I'm so disjointed about this. Yeah. So I guess maybe because we had, we already talked about James Earl Jones. So yeah, let's talk about the cast of the theater and then we'll talk about the episode, the episode, the segment, the vignette yeah. that was the theater. Yes. All right. We'll, we'll blow through this pretty quick because there's not too many people to discuss. Um, your lead character, uh, Amy Irving, plays Melissa Sanders, which is uh, she's credited as James Fiance. <laughs> but I, I wanted to give her actual character name on here outside of that. Um, probably the thing I most know her for, she was in Carrie and Carrie Two: the rage. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also in the movie, the fury, which is pretty cool and traffic. And this year there's, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I've been hearing a lot of buzz about that unsane film. Oh yeah. The Soderbergh um, thing that he she, shot on a cell phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she had a role in that. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that she was married to Steven Spielberg, and then she signed, um, was it a prenup or something, and got like $10 million whenever that relationship ended, so good on her. Um, And also, while she was on the set of a film called Honeysuckle Rose, which, whatever, it has Willie Nelson in that film, she started a relationship with him, and then later on left Willie Nelson for Steven Spielberg. What kind of life is that? Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. (laughs) How did I miss all that? That's insane. <laughs> it, it, uh, I, I deep dived because I didn't know how much we were going to talk about the story. So I kind of went, went looking <laughs> for a lot of information. Yeah. So next up, uh, we have Gary Cole as Dr. James, who uh, I, uh, being a little bit younger than you, but you probably know him from this as well. I mostly know Gary Cole as Bill Lumberg from Office Space. <laughs> it's funny. I didn't actually even write that down in my notes because I think – here, here's my admission. I've seen Office Space once, um, and I wasn't a big fan of it the first time around. And I, it's because maybe I never, didn't have an office job at that point. But him as that boss of like, yeah, if you could do that, that'd be great. That's a, it's, it's, you see it all yeah. the time. It's a meme. Gary Cole is awesome. Like, I love Gary Cole. He was the voice of Harvey Birdman. Like, I love that. He was the father yeah. of uh, Will Ferrell's character in Talladega Nights. And he was uh, Greg, not Greg Brady. He was the the father in um, the Brady yeah. Bunch films, Mike, Mike, Mike Brady, Brady, which yeah. if you've not seen those two films, those are actually really fun movies. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to rewatch it because we are, uh, me and my wife are going to Hawaii in <laughs> August. So I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to watch it so I can go to Hawaii and find a weird tiki pendant on the beach. And because if you could pick uh, <laughs> me up a cursed tiki necklace, I'd be, I'd be forever grateful. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then also one connection to Twilight Zone. He was in one episode of the 1980s series. Yeah. So, but yeah, but probably the most famous person outside James Earl Jones. Well, no, that's not true. We got someone who's yeah, much no, more famous. Coming. The next segment yeah. we'll talk about later. Um, then I got, I got a couple more. We have Heine Swedberg as I, I believe it's 
uh, Melissa's friend in the beginning of this. She's in it for like all um, of a minute. Yeah, at the very beginning here. Yeah, but she had a reoccurring role on Seinfeld, which I thought was worth mentioning. And then uh, sort of a tie-in to Star Trek, she had a role in Galaxy Quest. <laughs> but the big thing uh, about Seinfeld that you're, you're, you're missing is that she was George's fiance that ended up dying by licking the envelopes for their wedding. Oh, yeah. And, and the other thing, the reason she was killed off uh, is because like hurts like i guess um jason alexander said that he tried softening the blow saying that everybody liked her on the set but her sense of comedy was different than everybody else's so they killed her off because she wasn't meshing with the cast so that's her big claim to fame <laughs> that's really funny well i think her name was susan on that <laughs> yeah right? yeah I think was so. that okay yeah um yeah and then she was also in kindergarten cop <laughs> oh which okay i thought that was i think she plays the mother of the main kid or that's whatever right in yeah kindergarten cop but uh anytime to bring up kindergarten cop on strange highways i'm going to try and do that uh, so then next up i wrote down priscilla pointer mm-hmm. which to be honest i don't even know if i caught her in the segment did you yeah she was the one there was the point where um, James's fiance. I'm sorry. No, Melissa Sanders. Like she turned around and oh, said something. She like, turns around the theater and asks, yes, if she and, could and, see what she was saying. And she was okay. upsetting the older woman. <laughs> yeah, that was her. That was Priscilla yeah. Pointer. Which we know from uh, last episode, we covered uh, the Ghost Train episode of Amazing Stories. She was one of the ghost, uh, the ghost passengers on the train. Yeah, looking out. So, and she is the reason that we stumbled across this movie and so, thank you for soul yes. pointer so <laughs> yeah. i can't blame you look at that <laughs> so she was the mother of uh melissa sanders character sue snell and carrie so i thought that was kind of fun they brought her back so she was the mother of her character in carrie um nice. and then she was also in the kick the Kings can segment of the twilight zone the movie which we mentioned previously and she was one of the doctors in nightmare on elm street three she wasn't the main psychiatrist but she was the one that was kind of an opposition to the um the, the like the drugging of the people having the the, the issues with their dreams and yeah. she didn't really believe that freddie was really targeting these kids it's all right they're all dream warriors so that's true okay. i mean if hey if um oh if striper says so yeah um and then she's also in Blue Velvet. I just want to mention that for you, even though I still have not seen that movie. But continue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since it's in our show intro, I know. Uh, anytime I know. somebody's in Blue <laughs> Blue Velvet, we should probably mention it. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, just finish it off, uh, at least for my notes, I have Joanne Pankow, uh, who plays the ticket lady in this. And she wasn't in too much, but I wrote down Big Fish. That was the only thing I'd really seen her in outside of this yeah and i just just to note that she doesn't say a word in this but she is my favorite character just because of the the stare she gives every single time that you see her on the screen so anyway yeah she does (laughs) she does what she needs to Uh. (laughs) she does the bare minimum which this should be called rod serling's bare minimum that's what this should should have been called but all right anyway so yeah cast cast we listen to to the intro uh, well, Melissa is doing. She has, she has about as much screen time as James Earl Jones in this. So <laughs> that's true. Um, so they mentioned in, in his intro that she's a sculptor working on the sculpture, and that's really, it's really not important to the episode. Like none, not none of all. that's at all. Like, and I, I honestly thought, especially the second time watching it, that I was like, you know what? There's a lot of setup that really has nothing to do with this story. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially uh, something that's about to happen in the episode. So we catch up with her. She's working on her latest sculpture, and her friend comes in and asks her how it went with James, the, uh, the Gary Cole's character. And um, 
I guess that he proposed to her the night before and she said no. And after that, he ended up standing her up and everything. And she was kind of upset by it. Well, he's also so, a doctor that's on call. And she, yes. that's the big thing, yeah. too, is that he is actually a doctor that has to do doctory things. And she was upset that he stood her up because probably doctor things happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the typical thing. It was just like, why you spend so much time as a police officer or a doctor, not enough time with the family, all that. Like, it's yeah. it, it's so many movies and stories like that. But. I mean, I mean, it's it's something a lot of professionals deal with, balancing home and work life and everything. So whatever. Um, yeah. So after this whole conversation, a clown appears <laughs> and uh, gives her a balloon and a few gag gifts. And it turns out uh, he starts reading a scroll that has an apology from Dr. James. And it turns out that it is Gary Cole in clown makeup. Yeah. I just, yeah. you know. Not to not to stop the whole thing here, but if, if if you got a guy who's a professional doctor that is you know obviously has time commitments and you know he he does love her all this stuff right? How does he have the goddamn time to go find a clown outfit and clown makeup and a clown wig and balloons and flowers and a scroll and little googly eye glasses and all that to show up to that? But he can't make dinner the night before after proposing to her. That seems a little odd to me. Yeah, uh, he seemed really into the clown thing too, which is <laughs> baffling. I feel like I feel like there's a lot of ways to win over uh, uh, a woman to get married, but uh, not that. I, yeah, I feel like if I ever came home to apologize to Nora wearing clown makeup. <laughs> I don't think it would go over very smoothly. Only, but only, she loves it though. She's <laughs> she is so charmed by it. If, I just, if you if so you weird. apologize to your wife with clown makeup on, only if it was smeared by accident because you had to kill a clown on the way home, would she understand? <laughs> She'd be like, "Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that you had to do some clown murder in the meantime." Uh, but yeah, like the, and the whole and this is the one thing I, I just I played this for Kevin before we start recording. Just Gary Cole's clown voice as he's reading this little poem annoyed the piss out of me, especially this part right here. Yeah. Um, and I thought, okay, great. That's a horrible clown voice, Gary Cole. We're never going to hear this again during the segment. It's never going to show up again. This is not going to be relevant to the story. Oh, and how wrong were you? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, Gary Cole, like you said, like probably shouldn't be cast to play a clown in this just i don't know there's there's just something really he, he wasn't he wasn't all of this yeah he wasn't cast for comedy until later because he knew that he was capable of doing it but he was never given the opportunity and the big role that he was actually showed that he could do comedy was the brady bunch films because he actually worked on a some other production with somebody and they kind of knew him like once the filming was done so like you you know that he has comedic timing this was just i don't know I think it was just he he knew what the script called for and he didn't have a clown voice in him and this is what he did. Like the whole bit of him pausing and having the googly eye glasses kind of pop back up on his face as he did his little poem, like that was okay, but the voice was annoying. Yeah. But his comedy roles are he's usually the straight man. I mean like his role in office space, he plays it dead serious, yeah, very deadpan. That's fair. Um, Pineapple Express, he plays a straight up murderer. Uh, like he's usually playing against people who make him funny. 
you know, that's so, fair. And he understands that and he's good at it. And uh, I mean, he's he's got a great look for that. <laughs> yeah, but but, but the yeah, Brady Bunch, he doesn't though, have a good yeah. clown look, but <laughs> we should probably get <laughs> yeah. off the clown. Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. We should get off. It'll come back. It'll come back. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, continue, please. Please continue. Let's get through this yeah. as fast as possible. Okay. I am so yeah, sorry. So they, they go out to lunch. They're at some diner and he's still bugging her to get married. And she's she's afraid. And. and he says he's got to he's got to go back to the hospital and everything. And she's upset because there's a uh, film playing that night she wants to go to and he can't go. So she ends up going alone. So she hops on the bus, goes to this this very classic looking theater and they're yeah. playing. A- they buy po- she buys popcorn outside. Have you ever bought popcorn outside a theater? By the way, I just want to mention that there's a no, vendor. If, if anyone hands you popcorn outside of the theater, don't eat it. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. I, I will mention more weird things about the theater when we get to it. But I'm just like, wait, what? So she buys her popcorn. She goes to the theater, and the, and it's this movie festival, but it's the same movie that they play every single night. Yeah, yeah. So they're playing this Cary Grant film called His Girl Friday, um, and she goes up to the ticket booth, and that's when we get to see our <laughs> our girl uh, Joanne Pankow. I like that name. Um, and she gets it, and she goes into the theater. And so the movie starts and everything and it's going fine. All of a sudden it switches over and starts replaying the clown scene that we just saw with Gary Cole in the makeup in black and white and the crowd's all laughing and everything. And she's very put off by it. So she ends up, she leaves the theater very quickly. After. She's not put off by it. She's actually smiling the first time because she thinks that he did. Well, something. yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, cause you hear the clown and you hear this and then you have to hear it again, you know? And she's like, Oh, that James, this guy that doesn't have the time to go to dinner with me somehow figured out how to like record us while I wasn't paying attention with the same exact angle that the, the episode already you know, showed us in and played it in front of people and they all enjoyed it. Like yeah. that. She was like ecstatic. How, about how pissed it. would you be if you went to go see a movie <laughs> and somebody <laughs> intercut just a random conversation from their day into the film? Like I would not be laughing. No, I would not be. Happy and if about it was it. Gary clown as a clown, I'd be upset about it. I'd be like, I want my money back and I'm going to go outside and get my refund for popcorn is what I would do. Yeah. 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 So she goes to the hospital to find James and, uh, she it, she brings up the fact of like oh you're real clever for setting this up and he's like yeah I'm I'm really busy <laughs> I did not do that and he's like actively bandaging up uh, this girl uh, <laughs> yeah and, <laughs> and I love he ends up like walking out of the room well he, he gets, gets called, called to go somewhere yeah. else and she continues the conversation with the teenager that's in the this room poor little girl who's getting her arm like it's like it's sprained or broken right and dr james is like wrapping it he leaves and she's still talking and i'm sorry and uh, melissa's still talking and she goes over and touches this girl like i'm like you're not a doctor you don't know this person it was yeah. a really weird moment like i get that you know we focus sometimes like laser focus on things like i did last week with uh you know the old man kissing his grandson on the mouth you know but <laughs> it was like you're not a doctor you shouldn't be touching patients and this poor you girl shouldn't even be in that room no like first of all <laughs> like i would be like uh can you get your can you get your fiance out of here yeah like, <laughs> it was weird and then but the scene lingered where she's just like yeah well i think he did it and she's just talking like this poor girl has no idea what's going on you know but it was weird like this this whole segment is just weird and not in a good way but anyway yeah (laughs) so then she ends up she's walking again she ends up back at the bus stop and um 
ends up going back to the theater. Yeah. I, she's waiting for the boss and ends up not catching the boss and walks to the theater. So she goes back in because why not? And the movie again flips back to the hospital conversation that we had just seen again. Yeah. And so this is the point where she asks uh, Priscilla Pointer if she can <laughs> see what she's seeing on the screen. And though this time it takes it a bit further, there's shots of her outside of the theater after this, after the film ends. And there's more clown stuff. There's like this weird little puppet clown in a window. Yeah. Um, that they keep showing. And there's like uh, some sort of chase and a gunshot. And they keep showing the clock and everything. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, I, it, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on at this point. Well, moment. she looks, she sees there's a clock on the, the flashed images on the screen. She looks at her watch and realizes it hasn't happened yet. So she yeah. wanders out yeah. of the theater. And that's my other thing I'm going to mention too. There's like two or three, these large deep glass box displays in this theater that are advertising this film called the clown or something. That's a real film, but they have these little animatronic clowns moving. I've never been to a theater that's been this in depth with presenting something. It was weird. But then as she's outside, um, this cop, which I guess he escaped from a fifties, like, you know, uh, crime show was chasing a suspect. And then, just shot him and then also but one of the bullets struck one of the glass of uh, the glass uh, the clown enclosure or whatever and broke the glass so she yeah. witnessed this cop shooting a suspect fleeing on foot and just because she had seen it previously she's freaked out obviously so regardless of the logic of this episode it would be freaky to see this happening on the screen and then see it happen in front of you yeah and it, like I said, it's kind of fun imagining how they would have done this for a Twilight Zone episode. And I think it would have played a little bit better. I agree. To be honest, if they would have had one of their regular directors and Serling behind the camera working on this. I mean, so was, I, th- I think it would have played off a lot better. Was Douglas Hayes alive when this was being filmed? Because I think he would have actually shined it up a whole lot, a lot better than what we got. Douglas Hayes do this whole movie. <laughs> I would love to see him do the second segment, but that's yeah. neither here nor there for this one. Um yeah, so she's freaked out because everything she saw happen in the movie theater ended up actually happening outside. So she goes, she we cut to her and James sitting in a car talking about it, and um, he's like, "It's all right, this is fine. We're gonna go back to the theater tomorrow together. I'm gonna show you that there's nothing's going on. Like you need to just get it out of your head." So she he's he explicitly says, do not go without me. Wait. So we cut the next day. She immediately goes, goes back, back to the theater alone. Like immediately. There's we cut to the next day and yeah. she's walking to the theater. Yep. So she buys a ticket and we see like a bright light flash as she enters. And I think that's the first time we see that light flare. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I don't know why they wouldn't do it the other, at least like the second time. I understand the first one because they want it to be jarring because you're not supposed to expect it. Mm -hmm. And if they would have did that light flare the first time, you would have expected something supernatural to start happening. So I understand that. But the fact that it only happens one out of the four. No, I guess maybe it happens the fourth time, but two out of the four times. is kind of weird. It's nothing about this really makes sense. No. So as she's in the theater, it again switches and we see the conversation she had with James in the car uh, two minutes before. So we get to see that again. And this time it shows her leaving a theater and all sorts of stuff happens and she ends up getting hit by a bus. Yeah, there's so. like these weird like like she sees a, a blind man crossing uh, the intersection with his cane 
Uh, she sees yeah. a a truck pulling a billboard for um, Anytime Fitness. Not really. That's what it feels like to me. <laughs> um, where it says something about this event happening on March 20th. And, and then she sees herself uh, getting hit by a bus. Or something to that effect. So she, yeah, you know, there, she freaks there's out. like a construction worker that comes out and tries to like warn he, yeah, he her, says, hey, and, he's and she a, gets scared yeah, by him, and she stumbles back and gets hit by a bus. Yeah. So she's obviously freaked out because she's seen two things already happen on screen that she can't explain. So she just assumes this is going to happen. So she goes outside. Well, it, I I love how she's sitting there freaked out. She's got this look of terror on her face, crying. And there's this guy behind her. It's like, hey, lady, it's a comedy, not a freaking tragedy. <laughs> I was like, what an asshole. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, leave her alone. Yeah. Obviously, something's going on. So she ends up leaving the theater and everything starts playing out exactly the same as it was again. So rather than wait for the bus, she ends up running down the alley and doesn't get hit by a bus. So we come back to her studio apartment and she's sitting on the couch. She's she's crying still. She's really distraught. And James comes in. She tells him about it. And um, he's like, well, it's March 20th and it didn't happen. So the future you saw didn't happen. You broke the chain. It's over. So she's like, OK, I guess I guess you're right. And we cut to the next day and he's back at the hospital and somebody comes in and tells him that it's March 20th. And he realizes he had the dates wrong and that. Today is actually March 20th. So like, he rushes out of the hospital. Yeah. Everything is happening just like it did in the movie again on March 20th. And she ends up getting hit by a bus. And uh, yeah. Well, two, <laughs> two things about that. One, I do. I think I get the realistic conceit that someone who is busy as a doctor may not know what day it is. But t- watching this twice it doesn't make sense to me how fat it's, it is like, it is like breakneck how it goes from it's the 20th. It's fine. You, you got through it to wait, today's the 20th. And they show an actual image of a calendar saying today is March 20th. Like they, yeah. they really and it might seem like I'm speeding up going through the plot, but it's no, literally no. like, bam, bam. Like yeah. now we're here. Now we're here. Now we're here. This happened. This <laughs> happened. And, she gets hit by a bus. Like, and then the, just, the construction worker's like, I don't I just came out of the alley and I was yelling for the bus to stop. And it's like, well, why did you come around out of the alley with an, like with holding your wrench up? Like you're going to hit somebody like you're in the freaking, uh, <laughs> aha take on me video. Like you looked like one of those guys. And I was like, what is going on? And so she freaked out and he's like, I don't know what she did. She just jumped in front of the bus. It's like way to absolve yourself there, buddy, you know, but then, um, you know, uh, Dr. James sees, you know, sees this and sees that his, you know, fiance is dead. So then he goes to buy a ticket to the theater and he sits down and all of a sudden the same thing's starting to happen. And you see him as the clown again, you see everything <laughs> again. And, and that's the end is that he believes her now because he's now a victim or, or I guess a witness to the power of this theater question mark. And that's the end of the segment. What if, uh, we should have gotten to see what was going to happen to Gary Cole's character. Yeah. What if it was him as the clown, like hanging himself? That would have been, <laughs> yeah. I, Oh man, I would have loved this segment so much more. If I would have got resolution with that dumb clown character. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. That would have been the best. Oh, that like, would have been the best. You're right. So, okay. Horrible, horrible segment. And I feel bad because, there is the skeleton, not even the skeleton. There's a skull of an idea in here. That's okay. 
um, that I, I that I dig. I dig, and we've talked about this, I think, even in some other Twilight Zone stuff, like a thing about machines, other stuff, where there's media playing and things happen that shouldn't make sense. I'm down with that. I was really, really hoping that the the His Girl Friday movie would actually almost do a thing where you'd see Gary Cole in the scene and her in the scene instead of like Gary Cooper and whoever reenacting some of their dialogue of what happened. So like it was almost like she's seeing her, her story play out with you know with within this movie. I was hoping for something like that. That would have been yeah. interesting to me. And then maybe even have one of the characters on the screen turn and directly address her, which would freak me out way more than showing flashes of the exact same camera angle and the exact same footage that we just saw. That to me yeah, pisses me off. It was always the scene that we just saw. It's not like it flashed back 10 minutes in the no. episode. It was like a minute. Like it, you get past the scene and then you get have to watch it, it again. And that's why this and is it, it's yeah. frustrating. Encounter it's with frustrating. the unknown. It's cheap. Yeah, it's it's like Encounter with the Unknown with the uh, two everything. by land, one by sea, and everything, <laughs> where they play it a million times, and they have to like, oh, remember when this happened five <laughs> minutes ago? Like, it's just insulting well, and it's frustrating and it's not interesting. Even the first it's, time she's on the bus going to the theater, there's audio flashbacks playing of the conversation you just had before she got to the theater the first time. It was yeah, like, it was so and, frustrating. And when he sees her get hit by a bus, like there's audio flashbacks of him, like it's okay, you broke the chain, it's over, it's over, it's over. Like TPS oh, reports, just... TPS reports, TPS yeah. reports. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, um, yeah, it's it's just really frustrating, and it's it's honestly insulting to yeah. intelligence to watch this thing. So I wonder, um, I wonder, if... I, I do like the idea of being able to like like think that you can change fate, but ultimately it ends up coming to get you. Cause we've seen episodes that have kind of done that in yeah. twilight zone. And it, like, I feel like if this was done in 1961 or 1962 as an episode, um, maybe without like the bad nineties made for TV aesthetic that this has, that maybe it would have been more tolerable. Maybe I don't, I just, but I, yeah. I think there's just not enough resolution and it, really has no emotional impact because i i have no connection to any characters in this um like we we barely get to know her um all we know is that she's afraid of commitment and and she's an artist that has nothing to do with anything and other than that she likes to go to the movies and she likes hamburgers because hamburger a good hamburger is better than like fancy bar food i don't whatever there i just i don't know like i just didn't care at all no no and like um um, James, his character in this, like he, he doesn't necessarily come off like a dick or anything, but he's just, he doesn't seem like he wants to be in the, <laughs> the no. story. Like he's just too busy to do anything. So it's just like, like all right, you're a doctor, whatever, like do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's frustrating. It just, it doesn't make you care about anything that's happening and it actively, actively frustrates you while you're watching it. Yeah. <laughs> so other notes I want to throw here real quick. One I wrote, James, let's be honest, you could do better is one thing I wrote while I was watching the second oh, time. Cheers. <laughs> and then also I was I gonna like have it. you explain to me why they boarded up the one glass enclosure that had the mechanical clown. Like they boarded <laughs> it up like 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 you would board up a window in a zombie attack where it was like like this haphazard boarding up, but yet somehow the clown robot kept working. Like it was like trying to be eccentric and weird and none of it made sense. 
Like, and if you notice, there was always like when things got a little weird, there was a slight Dutch angle to every shot. And you'll see, like, you could tell that that this director, that was him being bold with everything going on. And I don't know. There's there's a shot in the next segment I want to talk about. So I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to return to that. Uh, during the next the next segment, yeah, I, I just I, I'll just put a pin in this saying I I appreciate that Richard Matheson took the time to say hey this is like this is maybe a rod rod story idea it'll be fun kind of maybe expanding this out I also think that Richard Matheson woke up from a nap and wasn't just like I'll just type this out it's fine we're done we're done we're done like I don't know where I don't know where he's at in this like because Matheson so far and what we've watched has been very logical and it's made sense. And even if things have been fantastic, there's always that question of, well, it could have, or could not have. And, but the logic is usually pretty narrative. Logic is pretty airtight. This felt like, like Carol was calling in a favor and he's like, sure, I'll piece this together. And it makes me wonder if the teleplay is actually any good or if just the fact that the other segment was over an hour long. So they cut a lot out of this, there's something here that's missing because Matheson is better than this, you know, and I don't know where it is. Well, did he write this for the this movie when it came out or was this written as an episode? I know. No, this was just, I think this was just an idea. And then um, he wrote the teleplay expanding it out. He wrote it when they were producing this. Yeah. Okay. Cause a lot of Serling stuff we've talked about before Serling would, I don't know if this is actually typed out, but he would use kind of outline it. Yeah, he would dictaphone it and just kind of talk it through. So I don't know yeah. if this was just like a very meager skeleton that um, that Matheson was trying to fill out as if Serling did it. That might be part of it, too, is that he was probably trying to write more what Rod would want versus what he would want. I don't know. But yeah, it just, I honestly it, if they would have made it a little bit more simplified without adding like the clown stuff in <laughs> there, like because that stuff is just it it makes no sense and it takes away from the episode and if they would have just almost made it a little bit more simplistic and maybe added a little bit more of an ending to uh Gary Cole's character yeah i i think it would have went a long way in this for me at least if you eliminate but, that bit where like you the whole beginning like have her being stood up watching a movie and then she says to him hey you know i you know i do love you but you know you can't do this, and, and these films are always—they always have a happy ending. It's always predetermined. That's why I love these, and you'll never understand that. And then all of a sudden, she's seeing like this frustration that she's having with this. Like if you would tie it into her own like actual life without showing her life to begin with, that would have been more of an emotional jumping-off point. But no, you had yeah. her welding for no reason, and then a clown shows up, and whatever. Yeah. And it, it, it trying to place like why the clown in this episode. Yeah, I I could not come up with an answer. No, like no. I was trying to think of like some sort of meaning behind the clown, and I just <laughs> I, I I I'm coming up blank. I we, can't think of anything. We all try to find the meaning behind the clown, but but we never. Yeah, come up with I, it. <laughs> like and it's just frustrating. It's, it's like there had to have been some reason they decided to put all this clown imagery in this episode. Uh, but maybe it was just because they thought people might be creeped out by the clown thing. That's probably what I think it was. So, like, yeah. Anyway, it's but, this yeah. swing and a miss, Cur- and not just a miss. It is like, like you know, yeah, like, it's a whiff. It's I a mean, whiff. <laughs> Yeah, and I just feel bad because the pedigree is there, and this is just – it is probably one of the worst 
like 24 minutes I've watched so far for the show. Like even, even encounter with the unknown as bad as it was, it was so bad. It was kind of like, you couldn't look away from it. This was just frustrating because like you, you know, they could do better. And, and yeah. so, and, and, and by contrast, the second segment, second segment has to be better, right? Like it has to be. So, yeah. yeah. Well, usually anthology films are such a grab bag because like I, I usually go in expecting it. Like I'm probably not going to love all segments in an anthology film, but at least usually there's like three or four. Yeah, this is so, you like <laughs> this is the odds are not good going into just a movie with two stories like mm-hmm. this. Um, but yeah, it, it's funny because there's not much written about this film. Uh, there's not too many reviews out there. I did. As I was waiting to get on the mic tonight, I was flipping through a few people's review. It seems like a lot of people like the first segment more than the second. What? That doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. Like, wow. I, I, I read, uh, I, I forget, it was on an actual like review site. Um, they were talking about how the first one made up for the second one's uh, faults and stuff. And no. I, on Letterboxd, I saw some people saying the first segment is significantly better. And I don't know what they're seeing, but... <laughs> I just thought it was interesting because we both seem to be on the exact same page with this film. Um, yeah. uh, just uh, kind of uh, grasping where you are going into the second one. I think we're pretty much on the same yeah. page yeah. and uh, it just, it's baffling to me <laughs> that maybe, maybe we're out of it. No, I don't we're know. not out of <laughs> like, it. We're, we are definitely not out of it. We are, I believe having two seasons of critical review of the utmost importance <laughs> importance and, 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 you know, super classy, I don't know, but we've watched a lot of twilight zone. We've read a lot about it. We know what this, this, this whole thing is capable of. And if people like the, if the people like this first segment, just because of the, what if that's cool, that's fine. Um, and not to bring this back to my own life right now, this first, this first segment felt so much like, are you afraid of the dark? It killed me because, because <laughs> it didn't stick the landing. It was all it over the place. The and music really fast paced. The music, like, that's... The, the time swelled up like, like that over important music that had no reason to be, to be there. The music's better in the second segment, not by much. I know we talked about the guy and he, you know, does okay, but there's times where I, I think it's the second uh, film better because yes. it's kind of got that period piece epic feel to it. But so I yeah. think it matches up better. But yeah, this one does not deserve that big bombastic like Hollywood score no. that it gets because <laughs> it's it's honestly just a lady crying in a movie theater <laughs> for uh, twenty minutes if and you a clown get down to it. with a terrible voice. That's what it is. So yeah. Anyway, I never yeah. want to talk about this part of this thing ever again. So I'm glad that we're done with no. it. I watched yeah. this a day ago and I. Thank God I took notes <laughs> because like I, I needed those things to fuel my memory well, on this. It was so forgettable. And we we try I, not to tear down, but this one was just like, it's frustrating because it's like, I don't know. This feels like it's a B side to a single that you knew wasn't ever going to break the top 20, but you're like, but we got to put something on the B side and we have this, you know, and it just feels, it feels like half formed. It doesn't feel well executed. And it, I guess that's why I'm more, I ha- I'm full of more venom towards it is because like, th- like before the, before I watched it the first time, I'm like, Oh, Mathis is involved with this. This is going to be interesting. And just yeah. to be like, what just happened? And I don't want to tear down. Um, yeah, and there, and yeah. even James Earl Jones with his intro talking about two legends of the sci-fi world and everything. Yeah. And just, he, he talks this up like it's, 
it's going to be the most profound hour and a half of television that you're going to watch in the 90s, you know? Yeah. And uh, it, it just it and you're ready for it because it's Matheson and Serling. Like what? How can this go wrong? And they give you like the Twilight Zone intro with the door opening and the eye. You know, it's like they're like, yeah. you be ready. And then we were, and then this happened. So anyway, enough yeah. about the theater. So let's get into yeah. the second one. All right. So we let gotta, me, we got to get into this. <laughs> we've talked, we have to get into yeah, this. We've already talked longer about the theater than the theater existed. So let's get to where, where the dead are and we'll let, um, James Earl Jones take it away. And then we'll talk about that in a second. Dr. Benjamin Ramsey is a man on a mission, said mission involving a declaration of war on an enemy that has never been defeated. The enemy is death. And Dr. Ramsey will soon discover that trying to overcome it may not be the most prudent of courses, especially when the battle is waged in the Twilight Zone. And that's it. That's that's his intro for that one. The the hour-long story is like five seconds, and you hear that train going and pulling out of the station. That's James Earl Jones leaving the production. He's just, yeah, he, he is gone. He had one foot out the door as he was recording that. He actually yelled that through the exit <laughs> he's like i gotta catch a ghost train i am out of here like he was just gone you know so yeah anyway the second segment here uh, where the dead are um this is the one that is it was it was a sterling script that um that uh and i will say that it definitely feels sterling ish sterling ish at times with the dialogue so we'll talk about oh, that more later yeah this uh, this thing like i it, I'm I'm weary to talk about the plot in full because there's a lot of back and forth and it is just a ton of dialogue. And I I was scrambling writing down quotes and everything. Yeah. Just because there there's a lot of great quotes and a lot of good dialogue, um, but it's just so verbose and so dialogue heavy that it just at times you just kind of zone out. <laughs> yes. No, like there, um, like this one actually is worth watching. It's just that make sure you have a cup of coffee while you're watching it. You know, that's really like yeah. the only way I can preface it is because, um, just to tip my hand, I watched this the you know, first time all the way through second time I was watching it for notes and taking audio. I went and took a 20 minute nap, like about halfway through the whole thing again, because I couldn't like, I was just, I was losing it and I just like, I couldn't focus. So I took a nap and then finished like the last 40 minutes. And that's not a good sign of a property, you know? So anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I do want to preface this with, uh, when we were recording the last episode, uh, Paul kind of brought this up saying that I will, I'll probably be more on board with this just because I'll like the premise behind this. And you are correct. <laughs> um, I just, this yeah. seems like Rod Serling got a hold of a bunch of HP Lovecraft. Yes. Um, it, I mean, this is, this, this feels, feels more like H.P. Lovecraft than it does Serling it feels with like the premise of it. If the dialogue is Serling all day. Like, it, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like, it's it's his wordy, uh, overly dramatic dialogue. You know, it's it overly profound dialogue, I should say, that he sometimes when when he goes unchecked can fall into well it feels like if he was he wrote a spec script for tales from the crypt that's what it feels like to me you know and like that like and, and the hp lovecraft stuff absolutely but this feels a little bit more a uh, little bit more um grotesque and and what's going on not necessarily in what's actually being presented than what he wrote for the twilight zone at least so far we've seen you know and yeah i, I mean this is like this is like rod serling's herbert west this is yes, that's, absolutely. As yeah. I was watching, I was thinking like, reanimator the entire time. It's reanimator, but yeah. it, 
it reminds me of H.P. Lovecraft, who can be a very wordy author as well. So um, it, it feels like Rod Serling's Herbert West story. Yes. So it, and it's cool. Like, it's interesting to see that type of story played out from another uh, writer's perspective, especially that far after H.P. Lovecraft. But he had to have read some of those stories. Oh, for sure. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way. Just set in the New England area. Um being on an island and everything and reanimated corpses and everything. It, it, he had to have read uh, a few different H.P. Lovecraft stories. <laughs> not just an island, Shadow Island. We'll talk about that. Yes. <laughs> not, and uh, Yars, was it uh, Yarmouth, rather Something Innsmouth? Like, yeah. like, it's just, it's it's so close to Lovecraft. It's ridiculous. All right. But so, I liked yeah. it because of that. <laughs> I, I figured you would. And I also figured because of one of the actors involved, You'd be on board for this, and I this yeah. this is the segment that convinced me that no matter what we should talk about it because as 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 frustrating as the execution is at times, as frustrating as the directing is at times, there's merit in this. And if you guys have not watched this yet, which you know, flip a coin, you know, like this these are these the first episode, the first episode, the first part of it is weird, and this one is worth your time if you give it time, you know. But so yeah, let's talk about the cast, then we'll get into the story. Yeah, and it's on Amazon Prime right now, so yes, you guys should yeah. watch it because it's free, so why not? Um, yeah, so we'll jump into cast here. We have Patrick Burgeon, who plays Dr. Benjamin Ramsey, the surgeon. Um, I, I wrote down three very weird uh, picks for him. He was in uh, Free Fire, the uh, most recent Ben Wheatley film. Wh- who plays is character he? Howie. He oh. plays Howie. Which I think is one of the smaller characters. Okay. Because um, I couldn't figure out who it was, but yeah. I was really excited to see who was in that because that's one of my top films from last year. I didn't pick up that. That's awesome. Free Fire is awesome. You're right. I'm glad I watched that because your recommendation. So much fun. Um, he was also he had a big role on Patriot Games with Harrison Ford, and another one of my weird picks. He was in Highway to Hell from 1991, <laughs> which uh, if you haven't seen it, is amazing. I was going to mention he was also in Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace with Matt Furrer. So there you go. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Have you ever seen Highway to Hell, though? I have not. I know you've talked about it, and it's one of those things I've heard about in passing. I've not seen it. You would probably love it. It's it's like a horror comedy. Dude, I, I, I probably watched it maybe like 15 years ago, so I'm kind of fuzzy on it. But there's like a helicopter chasing a guy through the desert, which is like in purgatory. But he runs across all these ridiculous people, and uh, Ben Stiller's entire family is in it. Oh, it's got okay. It's got uh, Jerry Stiller. It's got Ben Stiller. It's got his wife, I believe, at the time, Amy Stiller. Um, Gilbert Gottfried, who we discussed on uh, the Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, <laughs> in. is in it. <laughs> in. Um, yeah, he plays like the main character, Beazle. Oh, wow, yeah, that's crazy. Christy Swanson, Chad Lowe, um, Lita Ford. <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Uh, but it's. It's so much fun. If you just look up pictures of uh, um, the Hellcop in it, it's incredible. All right, it's well, so I, cool. I, I have to watch this. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna double feature this with time with uh with uh, Highway to Hell and uh, Time Rider. That's like I just need I need motor yeah. vehicle related movies. That's what I need to watch. Yeah, it's it's not totally vehicle related, but I <laughs> I think you would really enjoy this because it's a bizarre, weird, funny horror film. And, it, it, you know, people talk about the 90s being kind of devoid of great horror films, but um, there's hidden gems like this all over the place. So I wanted to bring it 
Yep. And then uh, next up, we have Julia Campbell, who plays Maureen, the barmaid, uh, which she was in a few things I've seen. Rose Red, the TV series, the Stephen King TV series. Yeah. Um, I believe she plays Ellen Rimbauer, the owner of the house. If I'm yeah, not mistaken. I, you know, like my wife loves that um, miniseries. I have watched it once. And the thing that pisses me off about it, not to go on a tangent, half of that story is is half of Carrie, the, the half that didn't actually end up in the original film. So there's a lot of stuff that they mention about the character of whoever, like the house is called Rose Red. But yeah. the, the girl who is it Ellen Rimbauer, I don't even know. But some of the stuff well, she manifests. There's the psychic girl. Yeah. The uh, young girl. Is that who you're talking about? Yeah. She, th- some of her powers that manifest are directly taken from the Carrie novel. So I'm just like, come on, Stephen King. Like, you can not just take oh, take things from yourself, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway. It's like Carrie and little tie into Matheson again. Um, I always felt like Rose Red was kind of a, a legend of Hell House. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, rip off. So yeah. it's kind of like he recycled some ideas from Carrie borrowed a little bit from Matheson and he got Rose red, but there the miniseries, uh, it, it has some creepy moments in, in it. And I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of some of it. And Stevie <laughs> King is a pizza delivery guy. So you got, you got to dig that No, But, uh, yeah. yeah. And I think it ends with an ACDC song, right? So I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I um, what song then, is it? Which is it? Mistress for Christmas. It's probably not the right song. I don't know. No. <laughs> But the mistress ends up being dead. Uh, that's what. <laughs> that's a different song. Anyway, continue, yeah. please. <laughs> so, and she also had a reoccurring role on Dexter. Um, I could not remember the character that was listed. Um, yeah, she I've, looked. I watched that whole series, but she looked really familiar. Yeah, she looked really familiar. So, I figured it had to have been either one of those two because anything besides that, I don't think I had seen. So all so. I got for her was she was in a movie called Legion of fire killer ants, which was sound like a great title for a film and an episode. <laughs> that one. Must an, have missed it. <laughs> an episode of werewolf. So there's your werewolf connection for, uh, oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I still have that first season on my computer. I still have not watched it. I think we talked about that yeah. in one of the first episodes of Strange Highways, and I still haven't gotten around to watch it, but maybe one day. One day. Yeah. At least I'll watch the pilot. <laughs> yeah, that, sure. Um, then next up, we have uh, probably my favorite actor. Out, I would say I like Jack Palance uh, more than James Earl Jones, but yeah, we have Jack Palance as Dr. Jeremy Wheaton in this. Yes. Um, I re- mean, I, I don't know what other people know him from, but... I'm a big fan of Spaghetti Westerns, which if you listen to Paul's other podcast, Invasion of the Podcast, um, we talked quite a bit about Spaghetti Westerns after he wrapped up last year's Year of the Western, and he was in one of my favorites, Compañeros. I wrote that down because uh, there's just a sequence with him in that film where he's high off his ass in a bed, smoking something, and he has a falcon with him named Marsha. And I don't care... What you do in your life, you'll never be as cool as Jack Palance with a pencil thin mustache in a bed high, you know, high as balls with a hawk, you know, that that this is bidding. So um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But he was just one of those quintessential bad guys in war films and westerns. Um, and then ended up getting cast as just kind of the old guy. He was in City Slickers, Tango yeah. and Cash, uh, Batman. But he did win a few Emmys. Um he actually, to tie it into Twilight Zone, 
he won an Emmy for his performance on Playhouse 90, The Requiem for a Heavyweight, which we discussed previously on the Big Tall Wish episode. Yeah, the boxer um, thing that Sterling wrote. Yeah, the boxer. The, yeah. So, which he based on kind of his teleplay that he did for Playhouse 90, Requiem for a Heavyweight. Yeah. So, Jack Palance actually played the aging boxer in that and ended up winning an Emmy, which is pretty cool. So, that's something it, it's been haunting us. I still haven't watched that episode. Um, it's something I got to get around to yeah, at some I, point. Absolutely. Um, and then also it'd be remiss not to mention his uh, role in the, the wonderful film, Shane. Shane's actually a pretty good movie. The kid's annoying, but he plays yeah, a really, really like scary, good gun for hire. Uh, that is just an absolute asshole and Shane. And um, I, you know, <laughs> it's hard for me to recommend that movie just because of the kid, but he's really good in it. So I, I was really, and yeah, Jack Palance, there's a lot yeah. of good stuff going on in that film. Yeah. Just, you gotta get past, just have your finger on that mute button. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Jack Palance, he, for some reason of all the people that I would have, if you had said, Hey, who do you think would be able to deliver Sterling's dialogue the best? I don't know if he would have been the top of my list, but he chews this up and makes it, he elevates anytime he's talking in, in this segment, it makes it better. Like he is, he makes this worth watching. That's what I mean. We got to check out this Requiem for a heavyweight at some point, just because I, maybe he wouldn't be the last person you'd think of if we've seen that. Cause apparently That's he true. nailed it yeah. <laughs> for that episode. So I, I'd be curious to see him delivering, uh, Sterling dialogue in a different setting. So one day. Yeah. And then last person I'm going to mention, although I couldn't really find too much that I was familiar with, with her Jenna Stern plays Susan, who is, uh, Jack Palance's, uh, niece in this episode. Yeah. The only so. person I was going to mention was, uh, Peter McRobbie, which I couldn't tell you who he was in this episode, but he played pop pop in the Shyamalan film, the visit that was out a couple years ago. So he was the grandfather in that. Oh, okay. Um, and then he's also, yeah, he's been in a few things, Yeah, but yeah, I couldn't figure out who he was. I think he may have been Perkins. Yeah. I can't remember, but stage he, uh, coach driver, uh, but he, he I'm was not also percent sure. So I didn't want to say, <laughs> yeah, he was the priest in daredevil, which I know you haven't seen that, but that's the one that Matt Murdoch just basically goes and confesses everything to all the time. And the priest pretty much knows that something's going on with this guy, you know? So, uh, very, very, um, like good side ancillary character that is kind of giving a little bit of conscious or not conscious, but giving a little bit of a perspective to Matt Murdock as he's like, I just got to go beat the shit out of people. He's like, do you really need to? I kind of got to. So yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's, that's it. There's, there's, yeah, a, there, yeah. there's a bunch of other people, but nobody really known for anything. And people just kind of pop up here and there in the episode and they're yeah. not really in it too long. So I just wanted to kind of nail the, uh, the, the main people in it. Yeah. So, so yeah, I know, I know this is the one that you were the most excited to talk about. So please take it away. Uh, set it up. All right. So we open up where this, this takes place in Boston in 1868. So we open up on this rainy cobblestone street. There's horse and carriages going by. It's, it's great setting. And immediately it's like, okay, I know why Paul said I would probably enjoy this one immediately. That's <laughs> <laughs> like Gothic setting. Here we go. Uh, period piece. So it takes place at a medical university and uh, we get introduced to there's a man who is, I, I guess, drunk. They think is drunk um, and he's asking for help. And you get introduced to Dr. Ramsey 
And there's another guy there, which I did not catch his name. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, he's he's another doctor at this yeah. medical school. And um, he believes that this guy isn't worth saving, that he's going to die anyway, so he shouldn't even try. And you get the idea that uh, Dr. Ramsey cannot let things just go. And he has to do everything he can to save every life that comes in there. And that's something, talk about reanimator, that's pretty much the reason Herbert West gets involved with regeneration and everything in that story is that he can't let he can't let things go like he always has to go too far i feel like ramsey has a little bit better moral compass not so much yeah he doesn't go off the deep end like herbert west does but he doesn't he doesn't like losing it's it's very similar Yeah, he does not like losing like west does he doesn't like losing he believes that death is the opponent to ultimately overcome and regardless of the stakes he is going to fight that fight so you get that about him early uh, before they even get to the surgical theater. The other doctor is basically saying you get the you get some backstory about Ramsey that he was a Civil War uh, battlefield doctor. That's very fast. And they, they revisit this later. But basically, the other doctor is calling to question his um, uh, not sanity, but like like you something about working the war front. Like, you know, it, it, it's messed you up and you don't ever turn down any opportunity to cut somebody open, basically, is what this other doctor's saying. And he's like, well, if I could possibly save this guy, because he's clearly this guy has issues with his um, appendix and he's showing, I forget what was it, he mentioned some other uh, condition. He's like, I'm going to try to save him. And then they wheel this dude into the theater, the operating theater, which no matter what, that's always going to be a weird and creepy setting of just an open air area with a body being operated on with people just watching that's always gonna be creepy yeah yeah it's taken a step further because there's the one student as as they're removing the appendix and everything and that guy ultimately ends up dying on the operating table there's a student laughing in the crowd yeah and uh as everyone's leaving ramsey stops him and kind of asks him why he's laughing and everything and student really doesn't give a good answer of why he was laughing he's like you know the old yeah, the, uh, surgeon and successful operation. Yeah, successful operation, but the patient dies. That's what he was laughing yeah, about. Like, yeah, but it's just like, all right, all right, I guess. <laughs> Again, I thought that that student would play a bigger role in this episode. Nope, done. Like, so Ramsey basically no, is but like, it yeah. does show how serious that Ramsey takes all this and everything, yeah. and it shows just. Uh, there's really no room for error in his mind for this kind of stuff. Yeah. So it, it does play into his character. So I was, I mean, if that character, if the student was sitting there in clown makeup, <laughs> I would have had a bigger problem with that. You know? Yeah. So do you find this funny? No. Like that would have been like honk, you know? <laughs> You no, know, so so the, the so the, the the patient dies, but then as Ramsey's kind of like looking over the patient, he notices, and this is I'll give credit to the to the segment. Um, they they show this like wicked scar tissue like in this guy's scalp, where he's basically saying like, this guy took a, a c- incredible blow to the head and somehow lived. He's like this should not be physically possible. And at that yeah, point, it's, it's not even just like scar tissue; it's like a full like yeah dent in his head basically <laughs> yeah it, it does and first as quickly as they show it it's effective like it, it it's like it's one of those things that you kind of want to look away from you know like it is it's gross and for and for tv broadcast it's pretty gross 
And so he is like, this guy should have been dead a long time ago. Like, what's going on? And then so he starts kind of investigating, like, where this guy supposedly came from. Yeah. And so he brings up with that other doctor from before, if he's familiar with a, a Dr. Wheaton, you find out he's this uh, man that has come and spoke at the university in the past and that he's from this place called Yarmouth Village. And um, he did some research on regeneration and then just kind of vanished. And you find out that this guy who has died on the operating table also came from that same place. So he it kind of becomes obsessed with the idea that these two things are connected. Yeah. And Especially he, since like I should have died with the head trauma. I like that uh, Ramsey is like my obsession has been titillated. Like it's it's, yes. all, it's just like he's like he's like he's like I'm turned on by all this. Like it was really like a weird way to say it, but it's a very sterling way to say it, you know. So and then um, all of a sudden, like he's on a train going to Yarmouth uh, to investigate what's going on. Yeah. So he asked the he asked the driver of the the carriage. Uh, about wheat and everything. He tells him that he lives alone. Well, not necessarily alone, but he lives on the secluded Island called shadow Island. And, uh, yeah, the, the driver offers to get him a boat and everything. And he's like, yep, I'll take that as soon as you can get it ready in the morning. So he drops him off at this little inn, and he's going to get a room and everything. <laughs> I love when he goes up to the innkeeper and he's like, uh, let me get one room, please. And he, immediately like close his book he's like we're all booked up (laughs) (laughs) but the whole time there's a there's a girl watching him through the window when he's in the carriage she's watching him at the bar while he's trying to check into the inn and um it turns out that she's the the bar maid and um so she goes he goes over and after he finally ends up getting a room he goes and talks with the barmaid and asks her about Jeremy Wheaton you find out that he's a cripple and that he has a niece and he asks about the dead man that he was operating on she doesn't know anything I like that because he's he mentions the name she's like plenty of O'Neill's around here and he's like well he died on my operating table she's like plenty of dead O'Neill's around here as well yeah (laughs) (laughs) I like that it's like basically she's like you're not telling me anything and then yeah and then it, it gets weird because like he orders the one drink downs it and then she's like, do you need anything else for the night? And he's like, no, I'm good. She's like, are you sure? He's like, you'll be the first person that I let know. And it's like, it's like this weird, like she's offering to sleep with him. And he's like, no, nah, I'm good. And that doesn't ever come back to play the rest of the episode. Like I, again, I thought she well, would be a bigger character. Yeah. She does kind of come back at the end. And I, I, uh, yeah. I think, I think there's something to be said about her character at the end and everything. Cause yeah. he's. He's so obsessed with one thing throughout most of this movie when he's finally freed of that obsession by the end. Um, it, I get the idea that he's ultimately going to end up with her, but they don't really take it to the, that point. You have to convince but, me because it felt flat. But anyway, we'll get there. No, yeah. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to convince you, but that's kind of where my mind takes it. We'll talk about it when yeah, we get yeah, to the yeah. end. I don't, I don't want to jump ahead, but I, at least there's some sort of return to her character in this. Yeah. Because um, if that's where they would have left this, I would have been really frustrated. <laughs> um, you and her. So, yeah, he had, <laughs> yeah, she was very frustrated. Um so it's the next day he ends up taking this uh this boat over to Shadow Island and um he he finally gets there and he's watching all these men unloading these crates from the boat and uh one ends up falling on this man and he dies. 
So yeah. he asks them where where to find Wheaton, and they tell him he's in this big house at the end of the road. You can't miss it and everything. And you get this moment of the townspeople conspiring against him and saying, like, oh, it was that driver. Um, what was his character's name? I just said it. Um, oh, yeah, I can't remember. Whoever is driving the <laughs> carriage. Yeah. Um, oh, I had it written down. We'll get back to it at some point. Um, he's like, oh, he came over with that guy. You know, you can tell that they're up to no good and they're kind of conspiring against him. Yeah, and I, I just like that they're like, what are you, a priest? And it's like, he's not dressed like a yeah. priest. And then I also made a note here, I don't think Shadow Island is OSHA safe just from the way that that crate just kind of came over and crushed <laughs> that guy. Like, that was just like very... And then, then uh, Ramsey goes over and he's like, he's dead. Well, obviously so. I'm glad that you're a doctor that can identify that he's dead. And then, they, and then he ends up going over to um, Wheaton's house, which... Um, did you notice the fog at the house? How bright oh, yeah. that fog was? Like, yeah, and just rolling across the ground. Was, I always, I always loved that. It was cool looking, but I never see fog shots during the day, and that might be why, because it looked like it looked like a dance club or something. I don't know. It was really weird. It was a really bright, <laughs> shiny fog, and I've never seen that ever before. But at least it wasn't like foam night at uh, <laughs> at their houses. <laughs> do it's they still do that at clubs with two dollar natties? We're gonna do it. Like that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> DJ Wheaton's got a real party going on. Yeah, DJ uh, Pallets in the house. You know, like whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, so he knocks on the door, and uh, Susan ends up answering the door, who is uh, Wheaton's niece, and um, basically tells him to go away. But he ends up barging through the door. And she finally, he, he convinced her to go and find him. So she goes to tell him he has a visitor, but he follows her upstairs as she's going to do that. Yeah. And so, you see, um, and you see Wheaton, who is Jack Palance, uh, like with his back turned to the door and you see him in a wheelchair and he's packing heat. He has a gun with him because you've like, it's one of those things that the second time I watched it, it made more sense. But the first time I'm like, oh crap, he doesn't trust anybody. He just has a gun. It's Jack Palance. I don't like he he probably brought the gun with him on set. I don't know. But you know, like yeah. it was uh it, you get the the idea across this guy, you know, he's older and he's paranoid and he has a gun and he does not know who's coming through that door. Yeah. So um after they start talking, he ends up putting the gun back under the blanket and everything. And uh we end up we he reveals that he's had his legs amputated in surgery. So he's he's not really the biggest fan of surgeons. <laughs> yeah. And he even makes uh Ramsey's like stand like, you know, like ten feet away from him because of germs, which like at the time, like the the complete understanding of what was going on about how like medicine works and infection works, that's pretty forward thinking. But then Ramsey's like, Well, is this close enough? Or like like basically he's like taunting him and kind of like forcing his way in. Um, about this conversation he's like i need to speak to you and, and like he's like is this close enough and then i love the line here where he says yeah. um oh where deafness doesn't have to be one of my doesn't happen to be one of my afflictions i like I, just palace's way of delivering that line was wonderful yeah he's like far enough away um to stop uh, to stop like infection but close enough that i won't miss with my gun or a knife or something <laughs> like that i love that line too um, so, I mean, there is, there's a lot of scenes with a lot of heavy dialogue from yeah. this point on. Um, most of this is dialogue. Um, 
but he asks him about O'Neill and he tells him he died on uh, his operating table. And, but Wheaton really won't speak with his connection to O'Neill. And uh, but he finally tells him that he used to run an apothecary shop in Yarmouth and he gave O'Neill's family bandages one time because he fell over while he was drunk. Yeah. And that's basically all he gives him. So um, Ramsey ends up bringing up the fact that he heard that he was experimenting with tissue regeneration and everything. And it, it, there's there's so much in this conversation here. It's it's crazy. And it's it's funny because he's trying not to give me information, but without really any prompting, he just slowly starts giving him more and more <laughs> info as he goes along, but which kind of gives me the idea that like maybe he finally realizes like slowly is realizing that he can trust this guy a little bit, but he, like he gives this whole speech about Yarmouth basically saying, he says they go from the cradle to the grave smelling of fish and only Jack Palance can del- deliver that line and actually make it like hurt. You know, otherwise it sounds like a joke, you know, and he, yeah, he calls him trash and overly superstitious, uh, yeah. eh, superstitious and all that. And just, you can tell that he really believes that he's above the people of Yarmouth. Yeah. So then um, you're going to have to help me here because it, it's been a little bit longer since I've seen this in you. But there's yeah, a- so he, yeah. he basically kicks him out of the mm-hmm. room. And uh, so Ramsey starts going down the steps and he sees Susan giving the dead guy that the crushed crate the just crate, fell on. Yeah. yeah, the guy that was just crushed by the crate, giving an injection into the chest of some mystery liquid. Yeah. Um, it, so it, he runs back up to Wheaton immediately and confronts him about this and he's like i just saw this but as he's doing that he gets knocked out by one of the townspeople yeah and he ends up on a boat with a, a rope tied to him that has uh the, the carriage uh carriage driver like dead like, like and it's basically like they yeah, send him back to yeah, perkins the that perkins. was his name yeah. They, they yeah. Send, yeah they send him back to yarmouth island or Yar- not yarmouth island yarmouth with a dead guy in tow and basically like that guy murdered him. Like that was the whole, the whole thing was like, they're trying to say that the doctor, you know, killed this guy and decided to drag him along with a rope. Like, like. yeah. So we're back at the end and, uh, we enter the goofy character of Simpson, the magistrate yeah. of the village. And, uh, he basically tells him like, well, there's nothing we can do. We don't know. End of case. <laughs> yeah. He's and like, he's like, <laughs> he's like, uh, Ramsey's trying to convince him. Like, you won't do it. You can't do anything or you won't, you know, like, why don't you go over to shadow Island? Like there's something going on over there. They can kill and resurrect. And, um, the magistrate's like, nah, I can't help you with that. So he's (laughs) like, well, I'm going to go do something about it. You can help me or you won't. And magistrate doesn't help him. So he leaves the inn and, uh, he goes outside. And at that point he's approached by Susan who has come over from Shadow Island to Yarmouth. I, I respect that the magistrate and the people of Yarmouth kind of are like this active uh, avoidance of Shadow Island because they know what's going on. And it's kind of the idea of like, if we ignore that, then it's better for both parties. And as much as yeah. that may not ultimately serve them in the long run, like you can kind of understand why the town's like, we know what happens over there. We're not going to acknowledge it because if we do, then we're bringing problems to ourselves. So we've just chosen to kind of like say, Nope, you're on your own. And I kind of, I kind of understand their position. 
Yeah, and add some mystique to it because yeah. it, I mean, how many horror films where you have somebody like, oh, don't go there, you know, like yeah. so. Don't go to Shadow it, Island, it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who wants to go there anyway? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So as Susan ends up approaching him outside of the inn, and um, she's a, like a hooded figure, and she reveals herself and everything, and tells him that. Uh, she really needs him to come back and examine her uncle uh, Wheaton uh, just because he's sick and she thinks he might be dying. So they have a little awkward <laughs> yeah. romantic moment again. There's another awkward romance moment. She says, um, you have a gentle touch doctor. And he's like, in very special cases. <laughs> like what? Yeah. And he does the face off face wipe to her and everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Real awkward. So. <laughs> nice call. Yeah. Nice call. Yeah. 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 They end up taking the boat back to Shadow Island. And uh, she gives this weird, mischievous look as they're, like, getting off the boat. Mm -hmm. And I thought for a moment that and maybe they were trying to project this, but I thought for a moment that maybe they were trying to set him up. Yeah. And I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen because I I don't know if you caught it. It was like this weird glance at him and kind of like a smirk. That might have been that might have been when I was napping the second time. I, I didn't catch that. But okay. Like, but yeah, maybe it was just something that I that I looked too far into. But yeah, and I, I do love the look of the house the second yeah. time when they're walking up because all the windows are like glowing red this time. It looks really cool. Well, then you find Jack Palance in the bed and he he's not high. He does not have a hawk named Marsha. So I was really disappointed in that. But uh, you just he you you get the idea that he had he had a heart attack of some sort because they call it a a heart seizure or something, and yeah. basically he was like this is like my like fifth or sixth, and he was like what are my odds of making it to breakfast and and Ramsey's like I'll give it two to one, he's like like five to one for lunch and then basically saying you're not going to make it to dinner tomorrow which is like well then you better order a good breakfast that's my thought you know like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, eat all of the sausage. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Yeah. If it ends up giving you another heart attack, just stab yourself with a syringe. Like, yeah, right. It's fine. So <laughs> that, that's the point, though, where Wheaton explains everything because it's like he pretty much knows he's out the door. Yeah. Yeah. So he explains. I mean, it, it's 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 dumb science. He talks about <laughs> this uh, Egyptian plant called a Cairo bush that he mixes with other other medicine medicines. And if you inject it straight into the heart, it can regenerate, regenerate tissue and bring people back from the dead. So, so my question though, is he was an apothecary and started, he figured this out, right? This implies that he was stabbing people with other things before this. That's, yeah, that's in the, the heart. In the heart. <laughs> like, like, I Cairo tried bush? straight Cairo bush extract. Yeah. Like, um, like, I just, but it just killed people. So I started mixing other things. It's in like, it. I just, I just, I just, uh, ground up some poison ivy. That didn't go well. Like, what, like, what all did he experiment with before the Cairo bush? But either way, like, I know that's not the point, but I'm just like, it just implies that he was like killing people a lot before, uh, before he figured out this magic mixture. Yeah, I just want to mention I did a quick search. Uh, it looks like Cairo Bush is not a real uh, plant. <laughs> oh, I was about to start a rejuvenation business. You just ruined that for yeah. me. Which I kind of figured because that's probably the most obvious name for an Egyptian plant they could have come up with. It's well, like, and then also they should have called it like pyramid tree. Pyramid like, tree. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, then, but you know, pyramid you, tree extract. There's a pyramid tree. It's it's the shape of a pyramid. But uh, but Doctor Ramsey, you know, like that that name is so obvious because of uh, oh yeah. yeah yeah like it's all Egyptian, right? So. And and uh, what yeah, was it? Not very obvious and everything, but yeah, it, it's kind of cool. Though. I I like it. It's it's goofy sci-fi stuff, and I'm okay with it though. For you know, for for what it is, it's perfectly serviceable. I'll agree with that. So I guess it probably takes itself too seriously to be goofy sci-fi stuff mixed in there. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, and there's there's more dialogue about um. How have you noticed that there are no new tombstones on the island? And he reveals that three-fourths of the people on the island are actually dead. Yeah. And that you have to administer the shot within 15 minutes of their death or or they'll be dead for good. But if you do it within 15 minutes, life can be restored. And it wears off. So it has to be re-administered like every I, I I can't it's, remember it's how long it's not clear. Said. They said sometimes it lasts six months for some people. Sometimes it lasts six weeks. Sometimes six. Like they basically say that he couldn't figure out like why some people would take to it better than others, which really kind of breaks down what happens next. Like it doesn't make sense what happens next. But he he realized that he could kind of put death off because of this. And since three fourths of Shadow Island is now like on this that you find out that he wasn't crippled by accident. He was purposely hobbled by the people of shadow Island. So he couldn't take the knowledge of this away from them because they've gotten accustomed to being immortal, you know? And that's, yeah. that's actually one of the darker thoughts in this whole thing. And I kind of respect that. Yeah. And I, I didn't necessarily see that coming. No, I didn't like, either. It, Cause when he brings up, uh, his distaste for surgeons and everything in his legs. I thought they were just going to kind of leave it at there. But when there's ultimately a way darker side to why his legs were cut off, I really, uh, really appreciated that in this. Uh, but at, at some point within this, we do get a flashback to the battlefield uh, yeah. stuff that we talked about earlier in this. And, I, I don't know if we really needed it. It seemed like something that just kind of padded out runtime. It just show it just shows Ramsey like in a war hospital in the Civil War with like people that so like I, I don't know how much you like care about the Civil War, but I, I've read a lot and like and if you guys if you've never seen if you've not seen the Ken Burns documentary, it's amazing. There was more people that died to infection than died to actual warfare, right? So yeah like his role as trying to stave off death and fight everything and amputations and all of this is very real because you have to know that you're going to lose a lot more than you win being a surgeon to the civil war, because odds are the moment you got any type of infection, you're probably dead, you know? And so, so there was a lot of amputations done because it was almost a um, act of mercy knowing it'd be better to cut the limb off like further up than try to treat the infection, you know? So yeah, it's it's a very dark thing, and this flashback doesn't do anything other than showing some guy playing a bugle or something. That was weird. I feel like yeah, but it was like a synth bugle while he was playing it, which was <laughs> yeah. so it just felt so yeah, nineteen ninety four. It didn't fit right. So I feel like that flashback probably would have been better served at the beginning of the story. Uh, yes, when when the yes, other doctor right. confronts him, because he goes to this whole he he tells Wheaton this whole thing again, and it's like you get the idea that this guy's been ruined by his wartime experience, which that's valid. And he feels yeah, like, and yeah. figure it's was 1868. I said yeah. when this, so I mean, it was three, three years, years after the years civil after. war ended. Yeah. So, I mean, this has got to be something that is 
still fresh in his mind. Like there's, there's no way that this isn't constantly just popping up in his head. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay with it for that, that reason. Yeah. I mean, it's a valid enough, um, motivation, right? But we didn't, but this, so just, just to paint the picture real quick, this is the last 20 minutes of the entire two hour TV special that we now have a flashback to before. So it kills the momentum of everything going on. Yeah. And right it, in the middle of like, these uh, amazing revelations of yeah. this episode or this segment, like all of a sudden we just get this slow flashback of him wandering through a medical tent in the civil war. Yeah. It just, and it really doesn't go anywhere. No. I mean, like you said, I, I think it would have played a lot better at the beginning of this episode, but yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then you also find out that the other revelation is that Wheaton knowing that like, this has been his curse and he's, he's basically feels guilty for, um, like, you know, making this abomination of like, you know, of medical science, he's been, um, administering water to the people that ha- are resurrected, knowing that eventually that they're going to die again. They don't know it, but he's been setting up this, like basically this, uh, fallback plan, like for about six, like no, nine months. No, was it? Yeah. A year and a half. He said something like that or, or nine months. I don't remember now. But he's been doing this for a while, and that with the crate guy that got killed, they used the last of the substance, so that way the townsfolk didn't know that they were setting up this big like denouement of everybody dying all at once, which doesn't make sense yeah. because he admitted that the substance doesn't work consistently. So that's my only problem with the, the very end of this episode. But I like that he realizes that he's not long for the world, he's trapped, so stop giving them what they want and let the dead die. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he talks about like uh, sorry, six weeks, not six months. So yeah, six weeks. Okay. Yeah, so he 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 talks about the strange sweetness to uh, uh, just letting death come when it's going to come for you and everything, and that uh, it, there's there's a lot of discussion at the end of this episode of just talking about how people shouldn't chase to prolong life, but they should focus on living life and everything. Yeah, uh, which it seems like Sterling. Especially, I mean, it was a s- seven years before he ended up passing away. I mean, he ended up passing away pretty suddenly with the surgery and everything. Well, he was but, smoking um, that Cairo bush is what happened. We don't know him. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like, it, this is somebody definitely, like, going through a midlife crisis and uh, really contemplating death and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's got some interesting things to say about it. It gets a little too preachy at the very end. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so... It, where were we with it? So yeah, he Ramsey talks about how he wishes other people in this world knew about the secret and everything. And um, he pleads with this, he pleads with Whedon. He's like, "Give me what you know, so I can I can figure it out." He's like, "Nope, I'm not giving it to you." You know, like yeah. that's yeah, yeah. So at this point, one of the townspeople ends up like busting in through the door downstairs, and he comes out there and he's trying to get the solution. Ends up hitting Ramsey, knocking him to the floor. And I love how he runs up to Wheaton just yelling, nobody dies. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay, actually that kind was, of effective. That was pretty creepy. Yeah. yeah that was cool. Well, because he says his, um, it was, he said his sister doesn't recognize him anymore because whatever, he, it's starting to fail him. You know? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, and every time they show a shot of him, he's slowly, well, I shouldn't say more. He's rapidly, yeah. Um, uh, dying, uh, decaying, aging, yeah. rotting away. Yeah. And, um, my favorite thing in this uh, film happens at this point. <laughs> he ends up falling out a window. <laughs> oh, I'm I, clapping because I, I my... stood up and cheered when it <laughs> happened. I was so pumped. 
I, yeah, I wrote my notes, window fall. This is how you know it's a Sterling story. That's what I wrote in yeah. my notes. <laughs> how do well, you get rid of a character? That he falls out of window. Well, Perfect. Gone. We, gone. Wheaton tells him, he's like, you died 11 years ago, you know? And that's like, that was... Uh, yeah, I, that yeah. shocked him enough that he took a few steps back and fell out of window. window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wonderful, right? And then, so then you got the townsfolk like mobbing the, the well, mansion. Well, Wheaton ends yeah. up dying, I think, at that point. Uh, well, he dies in his niece's, uh, Susan's arms at this point, I believe. Yeah. And basically yeah. then, um, then Ramsey and Susan decide they're going to hightail it out. But then like the townspeople, yeah, are breaking they in. see all the townspeople surrounding the corpse that just fell out the window on the ground. Yeah. Which I like, cause they look up, they're like, look at the window. And they all look up at the window. <laughs> and then when they bust into the mansion, they find Wheaton They're there. I don't know if you remember, there's like a real quick, not even like. It's not even like 10 seconds. It's very quick. Someone's like, they just see Jack Palance in bed. Someone's like, he's dead. And then they move on to the next thing. Like they have to verify that he's dead. And so then they're chasing Ramsey because they, they, they know that he's a doctor and they pretty much believe that he could probably figure it out and keep them all alive. But as they're chasing him, which again, the time frame of how the stuff wears off doesn't make sense to me, but I love the idea that as the townspeople are advancing forward, some of them are just collapsing because they're dead. That's actually yeah. kind of a creepy image. And I, I wanted to bring up, uh, we put a pin in those touch angles and everything. There are a few shots that I felt were just completely just ripped out of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> I don't know if you caught them. As they were like approaching the mansion, um, there were these like low angle shots of them like stumbling towards the house. It, it looked like the director was like, yeah, I'm just going to copy that shot. I didn't, Perfect. I didn't pick that up, but I like that. Like there was just the point of like someone's wandering along and they just collapsed by a tree and then someone over was like, no, oh, you're dead. Like it was very <laughs> like, like, oh, but I did like, I thought the makeup was pretty decent. It, it wasn't anything it like worked. amazing, yeah. but, um, like the little kid that they show that's rotting away is pretty creepy but looking. That didn't make sense to me in the sense. So you got, um, uh, the, the niece, right? Whatever her name is. I forget it off the top of my head, but Susan, Susan, and she goes over to the kid and Ramsey's like, he's dead. It's like, she knows he's dead clearly. You know, it's like, why is she trying to be like, no, no, Timmy's okay or whatever. It's like, she knows what's up. You know, that seemed weird to me. And then they, but either way, uh, it was a real quick moment of like, he's dead. And they just keep running. And then they yeah. go towards the boat and um, they're having this big fight and uh, Ramsey is staving off the the dying townspeople of Shadow Island while he sends her off on the boat by herself. And then I don't really understand the resolution of, of how that ends, but he's trying to sacrifice <laughs> no. himself. Yeah. So he ends up getting like kind of piled on by all the townspeople. Uh, the boat takes off. The next shot is him waking up on the beach back at Yarmouth. Yeah. And he's laying on the ground and you get the magistrate and all the townspeople from Yarmouth standing over him and everything. And I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I don't like, know either. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like, oh, he washed the shore. The, Why? Did all the Shadow Island people just like die and fall and push him into the ocean or something or know. the lake, whatever yeah. it was like, I, I don't understand. No, how he got there, but it, whatever. Yeah. So he wakes up on the beach and you, you see Susan is rotting away next to him on the beach. And it turns out that she was being kept alive by the serum as well. Um, and she wrote, I guess in the boat, even though <coughs> yeah, if I were her, I would assume that he was killed. 
on the island uh, if you decided to write him a letter with a pencil and paper that were on that boat maybe I, I don't know but she wrote him a letter and he's reading it and everything and you find out that she actually died when she was eight years old of scarlet fever and that she should have died again but she was being kept alive and there's a, a lot of overly heavy dialogue about men should die when they die and that all they were all the townspeople cared about were staying alive, but they didn't care about living. And, you know, there's all that heavy Sterling dialogue. But you're missing the um, best which, part about that, though, is that it's not just oh, yeah, him reading yeah, a letter. Not him reading it. No, well, he's yeah. reading it, but it's over. So the actress is standing over top of him on the beach reading it aloud. So you, it's like it's like the only artistic thing in this whole goddamn TV movie that happens. And it's the very end where she's reading, like you hear this voice over him looking at the letter and she's over his shoulder, basically saying all this stuff. It's like, it's so weird. You know, it's very, yeah, very I weird liked it though. I, I think her, her delivery was pretty nice. Oh, it was fine. Uh, yeah. But yeah. And then she, she talks about when you die, uh, maybe just think of the, Think of it as going to sleep after a long and trying day and everything. Well, and, I, li- uh, I like that her description of being kept alive feels like that you're um, occupying somebody else's room. Like the whole thing of like, you're not welcome here. Like I like that. Yeah. I thought that was okay. But it was just yeah. a weird. It was a weird. Just it, a, there's just a yeah. lot of stuff. Like you can tell that Serling just uh, was uh, was thinking of all these things one night. You know, it was like, oh, I can't write down all these quotes and put them together and came up with this surrounding it. Because um, there is a lot of really great dialogue in this. It just there's so much of it that some of it just gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Because like I was I was scrambling to write down quotes in this, and I missed probably eighty percent of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So finally, after that, her, she vanishes, and um, he's left on the beach. And the bartender from before the barmaid asks Ramsey to dinner, and he says, "Of course." And um, he goes off about it all that same stuff that she basically said in the letter again. <laughs> and, and then we get, we get it closed out with a quote from the Bible, which I was really pumped about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you have dreams. Old Jones's dialogue over top of it. This talking about the Bible. Like it's, it's fine. You know, whatever, whatever, I guess it's fine. You know, it just let my people go. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it still was weird. It was just like, it, Watch like, reanimator. Yeah, right. It was just uh, the segment. the 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 story hook was interesting. Jack Palance was awesome, you know. But yeah, yeah. It, it, All it, the stuff with the revelation of him being kept on the island to keep these uh, dead people alive, like that was a very haunting revelation. I really enjoyed it, and uh, it, just the Lovecraftian vibes that I got from this mm-hmm. was enough to keep me interested. And it, I enjoyed it. I probably never watched this again. I'll probably no. never recommend it to someone, <laughs> even if they're like huge twilight zone fans. <laughs> like I'm not gonna be like, you know what? You gotta check out the lost it's classics. The lost classics. Yeah. Like, nah, it, it's just, it, it's not great. And I think a lot of it just comes down to execution is I think the ideas, like you said, especially uh, with this one, the ideas are there. Yeah. It just, it comes off like a nineties TV movie. Yeah. It's ugly. So and it's, it's not interesting to look at. No, <laughs> like, so the, the gas lamps that were in the very beginning and the medical theater were interesting. Cause it's, you know, period specific. But then the moment yeah. the second segment started, it got this orange yellow filter over every single scene. 
And it was very, I get this. This remind you that it was old. Yeah. And it took place in 1800. After a while. don't need that. It just made everything muddy, you know, and it was wrong. And so that was unfortunate. I mean, but like they, they, I feel like they got the period. Okay. But I, but that filter didn't help me any watching it. Um, it's just, it, I don't know. Like it's just, it felt like they were focusing on the wrong things for this presentation. But I also feel like if this was not that this was intended for the twilight zone, I feel like if, if Sterling would have taken the story, like he does a lot of his other ideas and turned them into a 24 minute script. Like, I think the compelling part would have been having Ramsey immediately walk in and confront Wheaton and tell the story of, I operated on one of your guys and he had this gash in his head and he shouldn't be alive. And that would have been an interesting, just jumping off point for this entire conversation. You could have probably told the story in 24 minutes and would have been way more interesting, you know? Yeah. There's just, uh, I, I brought it up before. It just feels like there's a lot of padding. Uh, like I said, this episode is so verbose. There's just way too much dialogue yeah. that basically says the same thing over and over again. You know, like quit worrying about the length of your life. Worry about the quality of your life. You know, it's pretty much just saying that over and over and over again. You know, it's just it, 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 you're right. If this was condensed down to 20, 30 minutes, it would have been way more tolerable, but yeah. it, it's not terrible. No, like, it's not. this one is, this one is uh, by far a better story <laughs> than the first one, but it's still just like, it, it's, yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of a slog to get through. It is. It's, it's, it's slow. Um, and I, I don't necessarily say that as a problem with a lot of things. It's um, not, it's slow in, in, in like the worst ways where it just, it doesn't go. It it's doesn't not have gauging. No, no, it's like for something to be like a slow burn, slow paced film or something like it, you have to be engaged and you have to be hanging on every single moment for that to work. Whereas this like there are moments where you start to feel like that, but then they end up taking the momentum away. Like you said, or like going to a flashback that really has nothing to do with what's happening at that moment. Yeah. In like the most important part of the episode. Like and I, I wonder if that's how it was in the teleplay or the screenplay, um, or if that was just something in editing that they ended up just dropping in there. Because if that's the case, like that's that's a huge misstep. Yeah, I, this this feels like something that's worthy. This segment is worthy of a remake, like approached, like done well. Like you could, this idea it could be a feature length idea if handled it is, correctly. Though. It is. It's, yeah. it's reanimator. Well, I mean, yeah. like it's it's yeah. It's that whole series. I mean, it's it's a mix of reanimator and I don't know if you've ever seen the resurrected, which was based on uh, the curious case of was it uh, Ward? I can't. Case of Ward. Oh man, I can't remember the Dexter Ward. I think oh, it was. Okay. Um, no, whatever that, that one yeah. and mixed with a little bit of shadow and, uh, over Innsmouth and, um, Dagon, you know, there's, there's like so many Lovecraft stories that this is basically pulling from. I mm. feel like it's like, just go watch anything based on that. That's fair. Like that, that's this idea already played out in a better hour and a half. That's more fun. That, that's true. So yeah. like, it, I, I appreciate it seeing it through Serling's lens, but I just think this idea has been played out better before. So that's fair. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's it for Rod Serling's lost classics, you know? So, yep. um, you know, I mean, 
it, should have stayed in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> right. I it, it, it's it, I've had more fun talking about it than I have watching it twice. I'll say that. So, but I mean, Amazon Prime 90 minutes just just, you know, have have a caffeinated drink. If if you guys are at all interested in the exhaustive ideas of Rod Serling, this is definitely on the list. But if you just enjoyed a conversation and never watched it, I'm not going to hold that against you. You know, <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend uh, like for people listening to this podcast, like you obviously have a uh, bigger interest in Twilight Zone than somebody that might just throw it on on Netflix without really knowing anything. Uh, this there might be some enjoyment for you, especially with the second segment. So it, it's free. Check it out, I guess. Um, <laughs> Seeing Jack Palance, but, uh, just Jack Palance. Yeah, Jack Palance, and uh, at least we got the audio clip of Gary Cole as a clown, right? <laughs> <laughs> God, that's going to haunt me, you know. Um, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> had to bring it up one more time. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I'll keep this on the board or not. It annoys me, but anyway, um, yeah, I think that's going to do it for the Lost Classics. Uh, Kevin, how can people find us? Oh, man. Um, you can find us on uh, Instagram and Facebook at Strange Highways Podcast. Um, join the conversation on there. Again, I'm trying to think of stuff to do with the Instagram that's just not sharing uh, stills from the TV show. Um, so let me know if there's anything you want to do. Uh, you want us to do on there. If you want little mini reviews of things that are tangentially related, we can do that. I don't know. I I don't know what podcasts do on Instagram because we're an audio the <laughs> show so people liked you posting a picture of a, a beverage before we started recording so maybe maybe post yeah, maybe more liquor. share what i'm drinking every, <laughs> yeah. every time we record <laughs> uh but yeah let us know on there you can email us at strange podcast at gmail.com uh you can also leave us voicemails there if you'd like to let us know what you think about the show uh let us know what you think about your favorite twilight zone episodes let us know what you thought about this uh twilight zone lost classics uh, or encounter with the unknown um <laughs> yeah yeah and then uh you can subscribe to us on itunes stitcher google play podbean pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts we are there and it would really help us out if you would rate and review us, especially on iTunes, because like I, I've been saying, I think uh, most people are finding us on there. So, um, yeah, please go over there, drop us a five star rating and review, and we'd really appreciate it. Yeah. So next week, uh, we're still taking some uh, some detours here on the show because I as, as frustrating as it's been a little bit, I'm still having fun doing it. And I know as much as we love Twilight Zone, like that's that's always going to be there what's off to the side of the road. So we're going to look at a uh, 1981's the monster club. Kevin's a little bit more familiar with this than I was. I just found this on Amazon prime as well as I was searching for Rod Sterling's lost classics. And I noticed it because it's an anthology film that has Vincent price, John Carradine and Donald Pleasance in it. And I'm like, what is this? And you told me that you owned it. So, but you've not watched this. Yeah. I, I went through a, um, Oh my God. Amicus kick a few years ago which was kind of the competing uh, studio to hammer in uh, Britain in like the sixties and seventies and even back into the fifties. So I was going through watching like a ton of that studio stuff. And this is kind of, uh, we were talking about it off air. This is kind of like the last film that that studio produced. Although I don't think it was produced as an amicus film when it finally came out. Um, so it was one of those things when I was doing all the research, trying to dig up everything I could. I 
ended up stumbling onto this film. So I, the Blu-ray came out recently. I picked it up and I read some mediocre reviews that kind of put it off my, <laughs> my like to watch file immediately. So it just kept getting buried and buried. And then I just hadn't been in the mood for it. So uh, when Paul brought this up, I was excited because this will finally give me a chance to bite the bullet and actually sit down and watch it. Yeah. So but I love I love all the people involved with this. Uh, the director worked with Am- uh, Amicus quite a bit. Um, he directed some stuff even for uh, for Hammer, uh, specifically Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which is incredible. It's a Hammer film and Shaw Brothers mashup. Oh, okay. uh, which is great. Yeah, it's fun stuff. Um, and all the, all the actors, like you said, that are in this are favorites of mine. So I'm sure even if the stories aren't too great, I'll get a kick out of something in this. And it seems like a nice palate cleanser compared to what we just watched this week, because, uh, (laughs) this, this stuff was depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, especially that second segment, like just watching Jack Palin's die for an hour talking about life and death. It was just like. He never, oh. he never revealed where his gold was the entire time, you know? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> there were no Falcons. I no, was, no, there was no Marsha. No, no, yeah, Marcia, no Marcia, one star to go after oh, Franco yes. Nero and, um, all the other guy that was in that, uh, Campaneros. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So next week, monster club, 1981, it is free to watch on Amazon prime. I feel like a lot of people have Amazon prime, so this should be easily accessible. Uh, if not, I'm sure I, I don't think this is going to be a hard movie to locate. If you are not a member of Amazon prime, I'm sure that there is, uh, probably other avenues on the internet to watch this film because I don't know who's making money off of it. So, but we'll watch it. It'll be interesting. I'd never heard of it. And I am all about, uh, anthology stuff that I've never seen. And I love, uh, I love Vincent price. So is, uh, any reason to get him on the show, I'm all about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm pumped for it. Like all I said, right. I think it's going to be a good palate cleanser. So, so, all right, that's going to cool. do it for us uh, this time around. Uh, we've talked more about the Lost Classics than the actual runtime of Lost Classics, so that's something. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, Carol Thurling would be proud. Yeah, and then in the meantime, uh, just uh, don't go injecting, um, what was it, uh, Egyptian, not Egyptian. Cairo Bush. Yeah, Cairo Bush. Don't go injecting that in the hearts because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, and uh, stay away from the clown makeup. Uh, I promise your fiance will not like it. And since I don't have much time, suppose you introduce me to your uncle.